Welcome to the Property Boom Show with Todd Polkey. Straight talk about how to make big money from property in today's market. Can you tell me about a story of when that happened and how it happened just so people get an understanding of the strategy? Construction strategy, what I love about the construction strategy, let me handle that first and foremost. Then I'll talk about a, a, you know, a specific deal that, um, that where this was created, right? Sure. So um, what I love about construction strategy is that you know, it's such a great add value strategy because you're adding significant value to a piece of land. You, know, you get a piece of land, um, you know, whether, whether it's uh, registered or not is, is not the point, but ideally it's going to be registered land with the council already. Um, you get a piece of land and then you have the opportunity to develop and construct something which was not there before in any way, shape or form. And you have, um, you have the opportunity to develop a lot of uh, equity in that type of deal and make your money on the way into the deal um, very strategically if you do it the right way. Because when you're building, uh, constructing, whether it be a house and land or a duplex or a, a three-pack or four-pack or whatever it is, of townhouse or units or, or whatever it is, you know, there are multiple different ways that you can actually profit from doing this type of deal. Like one way is that you have the opportunity to go and be able to buy it at a discount to start with, you know. You could buy a block of land at a, at a, um, at a, a discount to marketplace. You know, that's one way that you can um, create some value out of it. Two is that you can... Um, you can negotiate strategic terms with a builder. So, you know, you can um, uh, lock in uh, strategic build time frames and, and lock in, you know, liquidated damages clauses and a whole lot of stuff in there. And you can have the opportunity to build something which is really strategically suited to the marketplace and to the, um, to the local demographic of people that you're actually building it for. Because you're constructing something new, um, you're going to get maximum depreciation out of it as well, which is then going to reduce your tax. When you buy a land, buy land, uh, and then construct a house on it, you're actually only paying stamp duty on the land component itself. And so, you know, if you're constructing something for half a million dollars, which was the um, the the land and the build included, you know, if you're paying stamp duty on that whole amount, it'd be somewhere between seventeen and twenty thousand dollars. Where the land component itself might only be um, 150 to 200 thousand of that, and so your stamp duty might only be kind of four to five thousand dollars worth, which is obviously a substantial saving as well. So, just, and, just you know, go you, back depreciation. Yep. Um, people hear the word depreciation, but often they don't necessarily know what it means to their backline, their, their wallet, or their purse. They don't know what it means from a bottom line perspective. And Robert yep. Kiyosaki actually calls depreciation. Phantom cash flow. So the cash flow that investors may not be looking at when they go into a deal, but could actually really make a difference to them. So, can you just explain, like, if I buy a new um, house and land deal, how that phantom cash flow effect um, works? Or if I do a new contract deal, how that uh, phantom cash flow thing can work? Sure. Um, so depreciation itself is really um, talking about that over time. You know, with a with a house and or um, you know, a house and land. That over time, the land will go up in value, and the house itself, the construction will go will depreciate in value. Mm. And um, because that uh, that actually depreciates in value, um, that actually becomes a a tax write off for us, right? So. You know the um, all your fittings and fixtures and and all that type of stuff associated with a um, 
with a, a brand new property or any property, um, you know, especially a new one, because it's it's brand new, you get maximum depreciation that that, that can all those things can be written off over a period of uh, of maximum fifteen years, I think. And so, what that really means is that often when we're going and buying a house and land in major metro areas, for example, um, your your rental yield on that type of property might often only be a 5% rental yield compared to the value of the property as far as a gross yield goes. And yeah. if you're buying at a high loan-to-value ratio of maybe you know, 90%, for example, that mm. property will wind up being slightly negatively geared more mm. often than not. Maybe a 1000 2000 bucks a right. year or something. Th that's exactly right. But when you, um, you know, what Rob is talking about, when you get that, you know, phantom cash flow, if you then get depreciation, maximum depreciation of that type of, um, of that type of brand new property, you know, that actually has the opportunity to turn that negatively geared property into positive cash flow by somewhere in the vicinity of, um, you know, three to five thousand dollars, depending on your income and, and a whole lot of other factors, on a very consistent basis. Where I've seen properties where on a gross rental yield basis and, you know, taking into consideration, you know, the, the loan and council rates and all that type of stuff might be negative uh, two to $3,000 a year, for example. When you add in depreciation benefits and the tax benefits of that, that same property can wind up actually being positive cash flow by somewhere between two to $5,000 a year. And, you, you know, you can get that back either at the um, end of financial year when you submit your tax or if you're even more savvy than that, you can um, go and submit what is called a PAYG tax variation, which means that you don't have to wait until the end of financial year to get your get your tax back. Um, you can actually get that back in your pay packet on a you know on a weekly or fortnightly or monthly basis whenever it is that you get paid your normal wage. And so um, that cash flow then just comes back into your back pocket and uh, turns a negatively geared property into a, um, something which is positive. Yeah, and I really love that as well because, you know, let's say you've selected a good property that grows at, you know, let's say 7% a year over, you know, roughly a 10-year period, that property could be worth twice as much. But what I love about that is you're lowering your tax bill on the way. So if you buy a property in today's interest rates with, let's say, a 5% yield and it's a new construct, then factoring depreciation uh, not only will it not cost you money out of your pocket, but you'll actually be saving on uh, tax as well. So it's um, it, it's wonderful to see how those strategies sort of overlay with it with each other. I've seen many people, you know, when they've um, they bought their first few properties, actually take their tax to pretty well zero within the space of two to three years. So um, for a lot of people that are out there paying tax of you know twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, something like that. Imagine we have to bring that um, that tax bill down to almost zero within a few short years and getting that cash flow back into your back pocket. I mean, you just think about what you could do with it. You know, you could pay down your own home. You could use that to fund more um, more property investments. You could use a little bit for your personal life to, you know, for, for lifestyle purposes or whatever it is. So, um, you know, what you can do with that in your personal name um, as opposed to sitting, you know, paying it to the um, to the ATO uh, to the tax office. Um, or even you can contribute it in a way that you actually, you know, to a cause that you care about. You know, there's so much that you can do with it. So it can really add a lot of value, not only to your portfolio, but to your life in general. Yeah, and I suppose it's that uh, tipping point effect, isn't it? Because on the first property, it's like, okay, you know, no big deal. It's, you know, three or 4000 extra, but it's not, you know, let's go out and drink, um, 
you know, drink uh, Johnny, Johnny Walker Blue. But then, um, but I, as you start to accumulate three or four, then it's really starting to add up. And also, you've got the capital growth starting to kick in. There's always going to be at least one of those properties, in most cases, going into capital growth overdrive. And um, you've also got negative gearing benefits. So it's sort of that compounding, uh, compounding effect. So tell me about um, a strategy that I know that you've um, used and your students have used around benchmarking. Talk to me a little bit about how that, um, how that works. Yeah, look, benchmarking is really a critical due diligence tool. It really is. So what I teach a lot of my students is that when we're getting to know an area and when we are, um, we are doing due diligence of an area, uh, especially, especially when it comes to an add value strategy, for example, it's really, really critical. And so what benchmarking really is is that it's starting to get an understanding of the, be the pricing benchmark of an area and um, what properties in that existing area, you know, what is the range of prices that they're actually selling for? Now, when I talk about um, benchmarking, first and foremost, we've got to choose the type of product that we're talking about because we've got to compare apples to apples. You know, we can't compare the bench pricing benchmark of our two-bedroom unit versus a four-bedroom house because they're two completely different assets, for example. So mm -hmm. what we've got to focus on doing is comparing apples to apples and understanding, well, what is the, the range of prices of this particular product in this particular area? And so it might be a four-bedroom house, for example, and I always talk about three different types of properties, like three different property benchmarks, the first of which is an old established benchmark. And what that is really talking about is that if we find a you know, three or four-bedroom house in a particular area of an older nature, so it might be an older type of property that hasn't been renovated, um, and uh, you know, for example, in, in a particular area, that type of property might range between, the sale price might range between somewhere between $350,000 to maybe $450,000 as an example. So we now have established, well, that is what an older property in this type of area uh, really tends to sell for, and that's the benchmark. We then go and look at a new established benchmark. Okay, so this is newer properties in the area that are, you know, probably less than um, two years old, something like that. Uh, sorry, probably less than, you know, somewhere between two to four years old. So it's a newer type of property. It's already established and it's sitting there existing in the marketplace, but it's much newer. And so you want to find out, well, what does that property, um, you know, that, that type of property in this type of area tend to sell for? What is the range? And you might find out that it's somewhere between, um, you know, maybe uh, $420,000 up to $600,000, for example. And then you want to find out what, are, what is the um, established renovated benchmark, right? So this is older properties which have already had a renovation done to them. And you want to find out what the benchmark to, um, to that is as well. And the benefit of doing this and why we want to do this is that we, this, this is what gives us an understanding and a reference of is there any value to be had in this deal? Because we never want to be setting the benchmark, right? We don't want to be the ones that are building the, um, the $800,000 property where all of the new properties in the area are, are maxing out at around the 650000 mark because there's nothing for a value to come and compare it to, right? And so they'll just compare it to the closest thing or they'll say that it's not, um, there's no comparable properties and they'll rapidly devalue the property and there's really no margin in that deal on, on um, most most occasions. 
So when we're going to construct a property, we're talking about a house and land type of strategy, for example. When we're going to construct a property, we want to understand these benchmarks and so that we're not the ones that are setting the benchmark, is that we are constructing this property within that existing benchmark in an area um, where we can see that there's some more value to be had in the deal. So when a valuer comes back and looks at the property that we've gone and constructed and gets it revalued, that they can go and compare it to another existing similar property in the area which already um, which is at the upper end of that um, that value benchmark and so when they're comparing it to a higher price property it automatically on most occasions will tend to drag the um, the price the value of the property that we've constructed up towards that higher value and that's where we can recognize some really nice value in a deal fantastic so when when a client has gone into a deal for under the benchmark, is that when they can effectively make money on their way into a deal? Yes, 100% right. And so, um, you know, there's obviously multiple different ways you can make money on the way into the deal by purely buying at a discount, by buying below the median price, by, uh, uh, you know, and, and, you know, buying at a lower, um, a lower level, uh, you know, a lower benchmark is effectively getting a discount compared to what the rest of the, the marketplace is offering or renovation. There's multiple different ways that we can do this. So, um, yeah, that's when you're going and making your money on the way into the deal, you want to go, you know what, when I finish constructing this deal, can I actually see that there is room for this um, property to, to, um, to be valued at a higher level without the marketplace having to move at a significant level in terms of capital growth? Yeah, yeah. So you're looking then around what else is selling uh, in the market and you're looking at for that difference. You're looking at a property selling for 40, 50 grand more. That's comparable in, in most respects. And would you That's then right. uh, wait six months before uh, going to the bank or would you aim to get it revalued straight away typically? Look, it, it depends and it depends on the lender. You know, ideally you would love to go and get it revalued instantly. But often lenders won't allow you to do that. They'll tend to make you wait about a minimum of six months. And in the current tight lending conditions, often that might be 12 months. Having said that, like everything I always teach, you know, just don't take no as, as an answer. Um, if you can then go and demonstrate and do your research in the market and come up with those comparable valuations, your, um, you know, comparable property sales yourself, then you can take that to your lender and put an argument, well, hang on a moment, this is what other um, comparable properties are selling for. There's obviously some margin in this deal. There's obviously this is, um, this is worth a lot more than what I originally paid for it and what the loan is representing. So why don't we get a valuation done and go and, um, and go and see if the equity is actually in the deal. But you've got to make sure that, because the value when they look at a property they're always looking in retrospect, you know. They're not looking at what it might be in six months' time. They're looking at, well, what's happened over the last six months. And so they're always behind the eight ball by usually about six months. So um, you've got to make sure that you can represent that value in the deal and you can mm. sell the fact that there is, um, there is value to be had in that deal already to the lender. Yeah, so you're looking for the most recent sales possible. Um, we've got a house that's very similar to our next-door neighbor's house, same block of land and... Uh, same block of land size and everything, and they've sold their house for a much higher price than we bought our house for, but we've got to wait six months or till August for that property to settle because that was a long-term settlement before we can go to the bank with that as a comparable. Uh, but we, we have, you know, we want to wait and get that because it's 
such a a direct comparable and um, I, and you know b it's, it's much higher. So it's about finding the most recent comparable possible that um, puts your property in the best light. And you've also got to make sure that it already is on um, like an RP data or um, or the system which stores the uh, you know past property property sale information because um, it's it's often up to a real estate agent to um, put on to RP data uh, what that sale was and when it sold. So, but often they can be a little bit slack on that. So you want to make sure that just because you might know that next door neighbour Bob then went and sold their property for X amount, if it's not on RP data, then according to a value, it doesn't exist. So you've got to make sure that it's already sitting on the system that it was a sale and it, the price has been updated and all those type of things. Um, yeah. Otherwise, the valuer isn't going to compare it against it because it's just, well, that's great, that's nice that that happened, but show me the proof. What's the most money you've seen someone make on the way into one of these sort of deals in terms of getting in below the benchmark of an area? Are there any uh, examples that you that spring to mind? Yeah, one of my, one of my students um, bought a property in Ropes Crossing in um, in Sydney. Uh, they originally paid around uh, it's out West Sydney. Originally paid around four hundred fifty four hundred sixty thousand for it. Upon that settling, um, that property is worth six hundred seventy thousand. About six months later, so you know that's a two hundred twenty odd thousand, two hundred ten, two hundred twenty odd thousand increase in value in the space of I think it was around call it nine months, something like that. Um, in a nice moving market, so you know that's almost fifty percent of the value. Yeah, and look, that's that's incredible because you're effectively, uh, you know, you're making up to around twenty grand a month, <laughs> uh, just in terms of uh, your capital growth, um, yeah. which is you know incredible. So every night that you go to sleep, you're effectively making you know nine hundred dollars or something. <laughs> so uh, it's, and that's uh, that's what you want, right? You want your portfolio to be out earning your wage by a long shot, you know. And when that happens for you as a property investor, if you're doing it the right way, that's a day to celebrate. When your your property portfolio is out earning your um your day to day wage, that's a that's a beautiful day. That's a day yeah. to celebrate. And this is a really key point. There was a big uh, economic work recently called uh, I think it was called uh, on capital or something like that by a French economist and. He pointed out why the rich tend to get richer and the you know poor and middle class don't as much is because wages haven't been going up very much recently because there's been a um, you know we've got outsourcing to overseas we've got automation and stuff like that and um, different you know so there's a lot of pressures on wages uh, keeping wages down but on the other hand um, if you've got assets assets have still been uh, rising. Uh, real estate assets have been rising. So while if you've got a lot of money in assets, they, they're still been going up. You know, the stock market in general has been going up. The American economy, American stock market has boomed. Meanwhile, wages have stayed flat. So if you're a wealthy American with money in real estate, real estate's done great over the past eight years in America. The stock market's just absolutely boomed, and yet wages haven't really moved that much at all, although with unemployment down at 4%. You'll probably 4.9%. It probably will move, but that is the whole thing. It's like how much exposure can I get to the an asset class as soon as possible? That's really the game because you can never or rarely outsave an appreciating asset like real estate. Um, like no. the Australians that have got um, 
wealthy, like the ones that aren't, you know, big business owners and stuff like that, who have got wealthy, um, they haven't done it typically by saving your way there because on the average income you can only save so much and with kids and stuff it's you know, very hard to save much at all. Uh, whereas mm. an, you know, a few well-chosen properties, wow, it's amazing what they can do. So it, it really is the key to uh, sustainable, sustainable long-term wealth. I, I want to make a, a key point here and, um, and it's based on that. You know, so often people feel like they're a victim of circumstance and they feel like they're a victim to the market or a victim to the economy or a victim to their business or their job or whatever it is, right? But um, what we've got to understand is that we create our own economy. You know, you, every single person has the opportunity to create their own economy. Sure, the stuff that happens outside of our control, but what you can control is what you decide to do about it, right? So, and if you're being strategic in how you... Um, how you use your money and how you um, set yourself up in your work and your employment and, and what you do with your debt levels and your home and that type of stuff. You have the opportunity, every single person has the opportunity to go and create their own economy and become you know, recession-proof, if that's what you want to call it, um, because you're, you're investing strategically. So don't get caught up. Um, I don't want anyone to get caught up in this whole thing that, that you know, money and wealth and life and the economy is something which happens to me. Every one of you are in control. You have the opportunity to go and create your own economy within your own life. And so no matter what the circumstances are that are going on around you, you're continually moving forward and you're continually progressing. That's right, because each day you've got a choice in who you reach out to, what you read, who you spend time with, what you listen to, uh, what seminars you go to, what books you read. You've got a choice in how you communicate with the people around you. You've got a choice, you know, am I going to watch... Uh, you know, browse the internet mindlessly or am I going to, you know, call up my finance broker and see about a refi or, or you know, or get you, started you can, on a rent? You've always got you those can, choices. Absolutely. And you can yeah. turn up to work and just watch the hours go by and get paid on a, a dollar per hour value because you counted, um, counted how many hours you turned up to work. Or you can make a choice to turn up to work and add the most value you possibly can and to the company and to the team that you're working with so you become um, irreplaceable. And you become a, such a valuable member of the team that no matter what happens in the economy, you're the one that they're going to keep versus everyone else. You're the one that's going to get the promotion. You're the one that's going to get the raise. You're the one that when another company is looking for, um, for a superstar to be on their team, you're the one that has the reputation that is um, that they're, they're going to come looking after and pay a premium price to be able to get you. You know, we all have a choice in every single matter of this. It's so powerful. And I think that's possibly the greatest gift we've been given as human beings, the power of... Uh, of choice. Um, so thank you so much, Todd. That was educational. Thank you. Thanks.